Jeff, welcome to Writers Who Don't Write. Who is on the show this week? Stephanie Danler. She is an awesome writer. Um, and, you know, inadvertently on this episode, we go into, like, the mechanics of her writing. Uh, I don't think that we even wanted to or realized that we were going to do that, but I'm so glad. Uh, I definitely wanted to. I'm, I'm so glad that we did, though. Yeah, I, I wanted to because the way that she writes about food and wine in particular is the way that I imagine that I'm talking about food and wine when I'm trying to <laughs> bullshit my way through knowing anything about food or wine. You should uh, just start reading the restaurant section in like Time Out New York. Uh, you know your, what? In your, I don't in your understand NPR it, And when you read Stephanie's writing, it makes you feel like you understand because you recognize some of the feelings that she talks about. And we talked about that a little bit in the podcast. Yeah, it's kind of funny too because we uh, we get into a lot of you know personal stories and feels and that kind of thing. I talk about a restaurant that I worked in when I first moved to New York. Uh, you know, we get into it all. If you've read the book, you would really enjoy the interview. I think if you haven't read the book, you should go buy the book and read it, and then listen to the interview. Or if you don't read, just I don't know what you're doing listening to the show, but uh, read the book anyway, and then listen to the show. Let's get into it. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So I, I guess the best way to start, because, I mean, you've you know been interviewed literally everywhere since this book came out, um, is to, you know, get like a little timeline of, of how you got from, you know, from then to now. Wow. <laughs> we only have an hour. Um, let's see. Well, there's a through line in that story, which is that I always wanted to be a writer. And... I knew from a very young age that writing was the way that I expressed myself. And so I grew up in Southern California. I was um, a reader mostly and then kind of started writing stories at like eight or nine years old. And Southern California was fantastic but I had a, a troubled relationship with my mother and moved to Colorado to live with my father in the middle of high school. That was at age 16. And that was a really pivotal turn um, for me artistically because I had that almost stereotypical teacher that read a short story that I submitted for class and took me aside afterwards. And of course I thought I was in trouble because I was always in trouble. And he said, you're a writer. And I was like, oh, you recognize me, you see me. Um, and I could barely get into college. I, my transcripts were a mess. And he is, he is the one that sent me to Kenyon, where I did my undergrad. And how a girl from Southern California ends up in the dead center of Ohio, surrounded by nothing but cows and cornfields, is because of a writing program. Um, I mean, I was waitlisted everywhere. I had to fly to Kenyon twice. I had to send them every short story I had ever written, but I got in and really that changed the course of my life. Um, when yep. I was 18, I started to spend summers in New York. Everyone, everyone from Kenyon, it seemed was from New York or from the East coast, which is a world that I didn't understand at all. And I knew that as soon as I graduated, I would move to the city. Now, there's a parallel story going along this, which is my I got I've always worked 
And my first job was when I was 15 as a hostess at a seafood restaurant in California. And so I've been working in restaurants this entire time. And in college, I worked at the coffee shop on campus. So when I came to New York, I wanted to be a writer. I had what I thought was the next great American novel, which also had a ton of cocaine in it and (laughs) (laughs) was about New York City. But I knew that I would get a job in restaurants. I knew that They were a safe place for people in the arts to make money and maintain their quality of life. What I didn't know was that New York City restaurants were operating at a level of professionalism and expertise that totally blew my mind. It was so far out of my ken and I was enamored. So... I'm going to interrupt you for a second and and ask two questions. One is, what was it like to go to Kenyon, which is a school that's, you know, kind of known for breeding incredible writers? It was so wonderful that I was depressed for years after I left. I I, I have a cousin that went to Kenyon and, and, you know, I've heard that the school is amazing, but the location is not. So it's, it's funny for me to hear you say that, you know, you were depressed when you left. Oh my God. It's quite utopian to be on a hill in the middle of nowhere with your best friends. And you're all so intellectually engaged. And the cool thing to do is go to the library. Like, oh yeah, let's go study philosophy in the library. Like it's all very cliched, but it's also really special. And the caliber of the creative writing classes that I had there are on par with what I was experiencing in graduate school as well. I was pushed constantly, but, and I was also recognized as a writer. Um, the right, the writing community there took me in. And I think that that self-identifying is as, as a writer is a major step towards your craft. So um, I, I, I've yeah. actually heard that you know, no matter what program you're in at Kenyon, when you leave Kenyon, you are going to be a better writer than any of your peers at other colleges. Um, so it, is that true? Did you see that? I have heard that. And I would, I, um, yeah, my friends were in the drama department and the sociology department and the philosophy department, and they're all massively talented writers. The bar is just so high. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was an incredible experience, but it also is a bubble. Um, and we, when a group of us moved to New York city after college, I think we were shocked to, that no one was waiting to welcome us. (laughs) Um, I was like, wait, so you're not going to be a famous actor. I'm not going to be a famous novelist. Like we're not just going to become the selves that we've been hoping to become. Instead, we're all going to struggle and fail again and again and again. And most of us are going to leave New York. Um, depressing, very depressing. Well, However, when, when, <laughs> go you, ahead. when you got to New York in, in the book, uh, Tess, who is the, the main character in Sweet Bitter, um, you know, she actually had a line saying, you know, something like, uh, when I crossed the bridge, I was born. Um, 
Now, how autobiographical is that? Uh, you know, I know that you've said in the past that, you know, the book is, is a composite of so many different things, but, um, you know, was that you at all? Tess does start from me and borrows a lot of my biography and whether that's laziness on my part or playful, um, I'm not entirely sure, but I did drive across the George Washington Bridge. I was very ambitious. Um, I did have the same shitty apartment in Williamsburg. The most autobiographical part of Sweet Bitter is the experience of falling in love with restaurants, of walking into a job that you thought would be temporary and realizing that it was not only incredibly fulfilling and giving, but that it was legitimate as well as a life. And that there was so much to know. You could never keep up or know it all um, to receive this like inadvertent education and not look back. That was very true to my life. But the plot of Sweet Bitter is fictional. And so Tess, just by interacting with fictional characters became her own being almost immediately. Well, let's talk a little bit about that journey of falling in love with restaurants, because in the book, at least, you tie it with Tess to a developing of tastes and appetites. Um, and what I'm interested in, when you get in this period of your life, when you get to New York, uh, how you're developing your taste for writing and your taste for reading and how you're building that voice that comes through so strongly in Sweet Bitter? Um, I mean, when I first got to New York, I stopped writing for almost two years. There was a, a kind of slap in the face or shock of how difficult it was to survive in New York City that made my, my dreams of writing feel very thin. Um, I just was struggling to support myself like everyone else. And writing seemed very foolish. It seemed like a privilege that I'd lost. And I was always reading, and I do have a handwriting practice in notebooks in the morning. And so I continued to do that, but I stopped pursuing writing the way that I had been for my whole life. And... I did not think at the time that it would come back to me. There was like, there was a loss there, but mostly I was just living. I was so overwhelmed by the color and the tastes and the sounds of the city and by the availability of, of everything as most people are when they get to New York by the 24 hour nature of a city and I really initially did not feel the lack of writing. My life was filled up by that very quickly. Um, I've always been a reader and part of one of the benefits of Kenyon is that I do have this kind of classical education. So the year after college, just because I was in the mode, I mean, I read like Anna Karenina, I read Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. I, 
I was still reading in an almost academic way that fell off later, but, um, it was a, it was a very exciting time, but all I look back and it was almost brainless. It was so just about keeping up. And there's some of that, you know, kind of in the book, um, where, you know, Tess is in, in, you know, coffee shops and bars reading, you know, wine atlases and that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, you said something about how you were reading Henry James and Portrait of a Lady. And, um, and I know in interviews you've said that this is, book is, you know, kind of based in that vein. But it's funny, when I was reading it, uh, and I, by the way, also worked in a restaurant right when I got to New York that was, um, you know, kind of higher standards than anything I had done in the past. Um, Which but, one? Are you allowed to tell me? Yeah, I, I actually think it's closed now. It was on the Upper East Side. It was called Centelire. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. I didn't, I know that place. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, always used to say, um, I, I was, I was a brat and you know, when I, when I quit, I always used to say, I can't wait until I come back and you guys have to wait on me. Um, <laughs> and then that's you, like my worst nightmare. Just so you know, when I go back into restaurants and my friends have to wait on me. <laughs> no, I mean, it was, uh, I, I, I loved everybody I worked with, but at the same time I was, you know, 22 years old, had no idea how the world worked. And you know, didn't really care about anyone except myself. And, um, I had these ambitions of, you know, becoming this, you know, super wealthy guy who could go to restaurants like that every night and it just didn't happen. And, you know, a year later the restaurant ended up closing, but I mean, I, I was able to, you know, really feel for a lot of the, the situations of the book because I feel like I had, um, you know, similar experiences myself, but also when I was reading it, I got, um, kind of like a, a catcher in the rye or bright lights, big city feel. Um, mm-hmm. and maybe the bright lights, big city feel came because Jay McInerney, uh, you know, blurbed your book, but, um, you know, was that intentional at all? Very much so. Um, bright lights I read when I was in high school and was such an important book to me for so many reasons. First of all, writing an entire book in the second person is impossible. And yet somehow he pulls it off. It's genius. But second of all, it built into the mythology of New York City. It's part of what drove me to New York to have this experience, to come there and get chewed up by it and to survive it. Um, And when I wrote the first draft in graduate school, which was a 25-page short story called Sweet Bitter, Helen Shulman, who um, is an incredible novelist and was a great advocate for my book while I was working on it. She said that first sentence and the first sentence is you will develop a palette. She said, it's just reeks of eighties literature, <laughs> and I, which is such a beautiful writer thing to say. It just reeks of eighties literature. And I was like, yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah, and she I, said, you're going to you're going to have to change that. And I was like, no, I'm not changing it. Um, there is an homage there and it quickly becomes something else. But mm-hmm. um, when I. Yeah, it, go ahead. It's so funny because it's, uh, you know, the movie version of Bright Lights, Big City, you know, stars Michael J. Fox, Kiefer Sutherland. And I never really thought of that as an 80s book. Um, I, I mean, I should have, but I never did until I saw the movie. Um you know, it has the montages and, you know, the crazy hair and the suits with jeans. And um, I've never seen the movie. Oh my I God. should definitely do that. I, I actually, uh, when I read, you know, Sweet Bitter for the first time, I 
I immediately went out and watched it again because I, I realized how much I loved that film. Um, I mean, it's very, very similar. It's specifically yeah. for the jean suits and uh, flying hair, right? Oh, they're great. Yeah. <laughs> they're great. Yeah, but of course it's a it's from a male point of view, and I feel yes. like that is something that we've seen in literature again and again, which is um, the man boy or boy man arrives somewhere to manifest himself, to to conquer it, to survive. Um, and again, Catcher in the Rye, a profoundly important book to me in my youth, but it is the male coming of age story, mm-hmm. and so. I was working so consciously against what men had done in the past. And that doesn't just apply to Bright Lights or Gatsby or Catcher. It also applies to Kitchen Confidential. When I was sweet, I wanted Sweet Bitter to be very feminine and soft and romantic and also small in a way that it deals so much with the quotidian aspects of what it can be a very loud and glamorous and gritty life. And I was really tired of this sort of masculine testosterone driven, aggressive, tatted up rock and roll portrayal of an industry, which I found to be, to be really sensual um, and much more giving and, um, a little bit more dynamic maybe. And I love Kitchen Confidential. I think it's incredible work, but I was working against men and wanted to illuminate a different side of this coming of age story and this industry. I was so, I was really happy that you did that because I could, I could kind of tell. Um, and I mean, it, it really is a situation where, I mean, you know, it's a classic trope um, or, you know, I don't know if it's a trope, but, you know, if a woman writes a love story, then it's chick lit. And if, you know, a man does it, then it's it's literature. Um, and I do think that, like, there's no question about the fact that this is not, you know, one of those novels that would be conceived of as, as you know, chick lit. Um, it's a silly term. I, I shouldn't even use it. But, um you know, I think it, it, what I'm trying to say is I think it was very apparent that you did that and that you did it on purpose. And I think that you did it very well. Um, so, and I also thought that it was interesting because you, you know, you mentioned that you wanted to talk about this like very small space. Um, and you also did it within a very small time period. Um, you know, it was in a very short time period. It was within one year. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, at any point, did you kind of consider what this would be like if you showed, you know, a lot more of Tess's life? No, I never did. Um, the narrowness of it is what gives it its intensity. And I wanted a bit of claustrophobia. So much of the form that the novel takes is about mimicking dinner service or feeling authentic. That was my imperative. And I really already with just a less than a year of her life, had so much like there is so much on the cutting room floor every single sentence which led to every single vignette every single piece of dialogue had to be essential and I wasn't doing a character study of Tess 
I was doing my best to show as brightly as possible this moment in her life. And I think a lot of imagist poetry, um, Ezra Pound is jumping to mind immediately, the, um, in the metro station, which is just a moment of faces that look like petals on a bow to him. And if you can show that, that can be story. People don't think it can be story, but story isn't necessarily girl moves from point A to point B in a clear trajectory. It can be illuminated moments from her life. How, so let's talk about how you went about choosing those moments that didn't end up on the cutting room floor. Because I would imagine, I mean, I, I feel like you get the sense when you read this that there could be you know, thousands of moments that fit within this narrative. Um, Absolutely. So was there a specific strategy you approached uh, cutting with? Yeah. Um, at a certain point, I think I conceded to plot and momentum. The original drafts, I voice to me is story, totally. And most things that I read are not held together by movement or action or plot. And I'm thinking um, of Sleepless Nights by Elizabeth Hardwick, which is such an important book to me and is kind of a hybrid of fiction and a memoir. But as the memories are coming to her, they're all out of order. And you, you jump from location to location in different scenes. But what pulls it off is the grounded authenticity of the voice. And so I knew if I had the voice, I would be fine. However, at a certain point, I wanted to be kind to the reader. And there is a story and there is momentum. And so if a scene was not moving us further, scenes of Tess watching sunsets, I can write those for 20 years easily scenes of her talking in the kitchen with the sous chef about Catalan versus Basque anchovies. Like that's fun for me. I love writing that, but it was not moving us and was not moving her. Um, so it had to go. When you decide about movement, um, this book there's a sense of chaos to it that I feel like comes from the restaurant scene and having bartended at a restaurant, I can certainly relate a little bit, but not totally to the lifestyle of a waiter where it seems like the world is working against you. Um, <laughs> when you're deciding about moments of momentum of movement, how are you uh, considering, I guess sort of like the motivations of your idea for the story versus the motivations of your characters? Like how much is you, pulling the strings versus what you think the characters would actually do in that situation, even if it leads backwards in the story. Well, hopefully it's all my characters. I think anything else is too authorial and can give a novel, um, a sense of falseness or gimmick. Um, and so I think the goal in writing is to make it seem as if the characters had no other choice, but to, move in the way they've moved, but really you have made all of those decisions. Um, I don't remember forcing anything. That's one of my big fears. I wanted it to feel natural and as close to real life as possible. 
there's so much danger into falling into kind of a fairy tale, especially with a coming of age story. And so, yeah, anything, anything that felt forced, I, I had to back off. It just, it, it wasn't right. And I had enough material that I could shuffle things around and find something that did work. I feel like it did work because uh, the reason I ask is because it feels like by the time you get to the end of it, that it was so inevitable, even though it's hard to pull yourself out of the story enough to see the forest through the trees. By the time you hit the end, you're like this all, it, it seems so inevitable. I don't know another way to describe it. Yeah. Thank you. Um, that is something that was really important to me, but I will just say that, that comes in revisions. Mm. And I talk so much of the hard work of writing comes in the revising process. And when I talk, so many young writers ask me process questions and or for advice. And my the first thing I say, and this will be especially poignant for you two, is to finish things. You, <laughs> <laughs> well, then we um, wouldn't have a show you don't know what you have, whether it's shit or brilliant until you finish that first draft. And so that feeling of inevitability as I was going back and rewriting the novel, being able to hold the ending in my head, I knew that changes I was making on page two or page 25 were going to have a ripple effect and would come through in the last scene. But you can't do that until you have really put it all out there you can't refine it hear that kyle you have a lot of work to do sorry guys no shortcuts <laughs> what if it's shit though what if it is shit when you get to the end well then you start over and do it again um, it's usually not i mean there's always i would say there's probably something salvageable unless you're just not meant to be a writer and then that's a different story <laughs> so you know i wanted to you know now that we're talking about the actual process of writing i wanted to really get into the um you know some of the nitty-gritty about the book i want to know about you know your thought process with poetry because you have such you know an economy of language and you know i just want to know what your writing process is actually like because i've seen poetry all over your instagram account um mm-hmm. i read mostly poetry um i always have and I read it in the morning as a meditation. Whenever I'm blocked, I'm usually reading it. What poetry, economy is is a great word because there can be nothing flabby, nothing slack, and also nothing vague. Everything... Every metaphor that you want to make needs to be investigated to the fullest extent. If you hold yourself to that standard at a sentence level and you start to think about rhythm, it affects the entire novel. It affects the way your characters speak and then it affects where you end scenes. Um, I think there's something about the way that the vignettes break and the way there are certain repetitions um, that I borrow that a lot from poetry, the kind of calls of pickup or. um, Oh, wow. I hadn't even thought about that. The nicknames that flow through the novel and the repetition of flowers throughout 
the book. There are a ton. There's also, um, these are like all my secrets, but there's, there's so many descriptions of weight of lightness or heaviness. And I've gone through and looked at every single one and made sure that, um, the ones at the beginning match the ones at the end or that when I, there's moments of blindness. And so every time there's a moment of sight, that has to be a moment of revelation. So that, but that all comes from reading poetry, that kind of attention and what it's given me is a deficit in storytelling, which I'm fine with, but those are the things that keep me up at night. Um, and what, wasn't Shakespeare, yeah. wasn't Shakespeare known for doing that? I don't know. What, what's his line? Um, oh God, this is going to kill me. Um, while you, while you, uh, yeah, it, marinate that for <laughs> a few minutes. Um, there is also a sense in the novel that I got, I, to- I totally did not pick up consciously on the descriptions of weight. But one thing that kind of stuck out uh, was your treatment of time and how in those moments you tend to... Uh, I, f- I felt like in the moments of sight you tended to elongate the moment to give mm-hmm. us more observation of the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, what I guess what's your strategy for dealing with time in those moments and how does that relate to the topic of weight? Friends, Romans, countrymen, by the way. It's one syllable, <laughs> two syllables, three syllables. Yeah, I, whatever Shakespeare does, I will say that I do that, <laughs> yes. Totally intentionally, right? Um, there is... But now I'm thinking about not weight, but velocity. Mm. Um, because I want the book... I wanted the book to be fast because dinner service is fast and 10 hours go by in the blink of an eye. And I love using dialogue, obviously, but that really speeds up a story as well. So the moments where time slows down, the moments of revelation, let's say, her first oyster, Mm. which um, those scenes are usually set off and I allow myself to take my time where so much of many of the other fragments, I want to be acting like a punch in the face. I want this one to be breath. Um, And they are the gravity that is actually grounding the novel. That is what is holding the reader to the page because I would have loved to write something that mimicked dinner service the entire way through, but you would have read it in two seconds and it would have been chaotic and messy and kind of funny and that's it. But um, those moments of breathing are what really kind of keep the novel tethered to the ground and to Tess's very slow and very complicated transformation. So I want to try something kind of new for us. Um, If you're okay with this, I want to, I have 10 words here that I wrote down 
And I'd like to say them, and then I'd like to hear what your immediate reaction to each of them are. We, we, oh my god! We know this you're is going to be poetry. either. This is either going to be shit or brilliant. So we will see what happens. That's, but what, yeah, that's why God made editing. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, By the way, this is just called free association. Like Jeff described it in a very roundabout way, but yeah, <laughs> what we basically want to do with you is free associate. When do I ever get to something immediately? Um, this is wonderful, guys. I can cancel therapy this week. <laughs> Perfect. So what do you see in these images? Um, heat. Fire. Oysters. Sex. Tattoos. Trouble. Sour. Lemons. Dark. Night. Secrets. Whispers. Poetry. White space. Fear. Vulnerability. Pulse. Lust. Freedom. Walking. I don't know how to measure whether or not that was brilliant. Yeah. We don't know. We have no idea. That was so strange. Yeah. You'll see. I think you'll see when you listen to this later whether that worked or not. Yeah. I, I don't really know. You know, I'm I feel like uh, so I'm intrigued, but I want to ask more questions. Yeah. I mean, I'm just I, I don't know if we asked that at the wrong time or what, but I, I mean, no. I, I liked it, but it was fine. I thought it went uh, it, it went swimmingly. So. Okay, here here's a good one. Um, mm-hmm. You had a you know fairly unique, but also you know kind of a glamorous inception of this book. Um, it was written about in the Times. Uh, mm-hmm. It was actually a patron of one of your restaurants uh, that was an editor at Knopf, which um, for anyone who doesn't know is you know one of the most well-respected publishing houses in the industry, um, and. You know, you had this big announcement. You made a bunch of money. Uh, this was also <laughs> at the same time that, you know, there were a lot of other announcements that were very similar. You know, I'm thinking specifically of City on Fire by um, Garth Hallbrook. Um, his book came out and it received, you know, varying degrees of success in terms of reviews and interviews and everything. And, um, you know, maybe sold well. Uh, I'm not actually sure on the numbers as of now. Um, but your book, as of this recording, and correct me if I'm wrong, is celebrating its fifth week on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, mm-hmm. So congratulations, by the way. Thank you. And we know that it will be on for a sixth. So we can oh. just celebrate six. Congratulations. Six, 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 yeah. And hopefully yeah. by the time this airs, it's still on the list. That I doubt that will happen. But yes. We will celebrate many weeks at that point. <laughs> Do you have a sense of having lived up to the expectations that were set out at the at the beginning of this journey? Mm, it's an interesting question because we would have to define the expectations. My expectations versus Knopf's expectations. Um, I am a writer and I am not a publisher and I am not a marketer or a publicist or someone that looks at a PL at Knopf. So let's start with the writer's expectations. Getting published is 
insane. It's an insane privilege to publish with Knopf is shocking. I could just stop there. And most days I do. And I say, <laughs> you've done enough. You've done it. Stephanie, Like you really can't ask for anything else beyond that. When they took on Sweet Bitter, which was a complicated time in that New York Times article you mentioned, um, I have a conflicted relationship with uh, because it was a a little skewed in how it presented um, my book deal. And it also that particular article mentioned two other young women who had recently had big, and I'm using air quotes, big book deals. And I find the whole premise a little sexist, to be honest, that it's newsworthy for women to be paid, um, paid well for their work. Um, but at that point, I never thought that Sweet Bitter could be a bestseller. I made a very weird book. I think it's weird. My character has no backstory. Um, the form is jumpy and fragmented. I really wanted to make something new and different that didn't feel like a conventional novel. And I leave my heroine in morally ambiguous territory. Um, and really drag her through the gray slime of growing up. And there were a lot of questions about likability, and there was a lot of questions about plot that I really wasn't willing to compromise on. And so I imagined that Sweet Bitter would find its readers, which all books do. I thought that it would find the people that loved food and people that loved prose and people that loved reading about New York city. I never thought that it could be a bestseller. And for the entire time as it was coming out, I was a little worried because that was the expectation of the publisher. This is like the Holy grail of book publishing is the literary crossover. But I thought they were fitting a, uh, a square peg in a round hole, so to speak. And those were the times in which I reminded myself that it really didn't matter. The, num the numbers don't matter to any writer. The, the reward is we get to write. I don't have to waitress anymore. I've already won whatever game is being played out there. And so as I've been touring and talking about the, the totally shocking, unexpected success of Sweet Bitter, I credit Knopf because this is their game and they've done an incredible job. Mm -hmm. So backing up a little bit to... Before yeah. we back up, that is probably the most honest answer I think I've ever heard <laughs> to that question. <laughs> and it was amazing. Thank you. Oh, yeah, of course. That's... I, I also, you know, thank you for, for you know, being on this show. Um, but... <laughs> Yeah. But no, I mean, I, I'm very curious about the comment you made before about it being, you know, potentially, you know, a sexist thing to write about women who are getting these great book deals. Um, because, I mean, A, the article was written by a woman who's, you know, respected for, for being very fair. Um, yeah, Alexandra Alter. Yeah, she's mm -hmm. great. You know, um, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I'm just, I'm curious because there have been articles, 
you know, written about men who have gotten great book deals as well. Um, and I mean, I don't really have an opinion one way or the other, but I did notice that when I read the article that they chose three women. Yeah, it stuck out to me. And I Garth's deal, book deal, of course, was talked about, but I think that there's a, a difference in tone. Um, I remember when Emma got her book deal, I, can't, I don't know whether it was Gawker or Emma Klein who wrote The Girls, which is a, another fantastic novel for anyone who's listening. Um, Excellent book. Vulture or Gawker wrote uh, like 25 reasons to hate Emma Klein. Huh. Um, and I find that I don't know what Garth's experience is, but I find that I am asked, I've been asked about my book deal and the kind of fairy tale aspect of my publishing story a lot. And I don't see other debut male authors getting asked the same kind of questions that I get asked. And that's, that's a fact in my own observation. Maybe they are, and it's not being printed. Um, and it was a strange time as, as people picked up on that story about there was an, an article in Entertainment Weekly, like, why are publishers betting big on female novelists, which is just the most ridiculous question I can possibly think of. Um, yeah, it's interesting and it's subtle. And the article was written by a woman and that it presented my story as if I had slid my manuscript across the table to an editor and it interviewed everyone surrounding the book deal, but it did not, no one spoke to me um, because I didn't slide my manuscript across the table. I ha <laughs> already had an agent and we took 11 meetings I, with different publishers. Too. Yeah, it was. Um, but the reason my relationship with the article is conflicted is because at that time, I had no privacy settings on anything in my life, meaning I was just very open and available on Facebook or any social media uh, platform. And I was a waitress and I had no money and I had this book deal and this article, but my life hadn't changed at all. And I got hundreds, literally hundreds of messages from servers and artists and parents of young writers who were so inspired by that story. And it really took on a life that is separate from me and has gone into the realm of an urban myth that you can be dis discovered today. Today is the day that your entire life can change. Ignore the years of hard work and sacrifice that I put into it. But um, that story is really important to people. And I respect that. Do you think, I feel like that story, it's a very American story. Uh, the story of, you know, j being discovered for this innate talent that you have always possessed but never really developed, which is, it seems to me, how they frame that story in the Times. Right. Whether it was intentional, uh, I wouldn't be able to say. But it takes away from the fact that, you know, through 11 meetings and a graduate course, and yeah, I can't even imagine the number of revisions that went into this book. It was hard work that made the sale. It wasn't a fairy tale. So the question I would ask you is what, what did you really miss talking about 
that part of your story. So if you could go back to that time and do interviews about how you got to where you were when you got this book deal, what would you, what do you wish you were asked? What would you say? Um, I wish that the heart, that the, the work hadn't been whitewashed. I wish that my voice hadn't been ignored. I really did feel like a face, like insert face of waitress they took my photo, but I didn't get to say I accomplished this or um, this is why I chose Knopf. Um, this is why, this is how I found my agent. This is what it was like to wait tables at 31 years old with a manuscript and tons of debt and be terrified and still have your life change overnight because I'm not. I'm not trying to say that it wasn't totally transformative. It was transformative to the point almost of being its own trauma. Like every single aspect of my life changed once I left restaurants. Um, it was an entirely new career and it felt like it happened in a blink. But my voice was missing from the piece. And I just think that it gave a false represent it was a it was not an entirely accurate picture of the story but it's a story it's its own story mm -hmm. and i mean it's it's one of those you know speaking of sweet bitter this is one of those bittersweet things about the machine of publishing is that mm -hmm. you know you kind of have to create a story um in order to get people interested in in, in the book um, absolutely so speaking on that note, you've also written a handful of essays, um, which are nonfiction. And, you know, you've written about the loss of physical objects like jewelry. Uh, mm -hmm. You've written about the loss of, um, you know, your father in a sense. Uh, and, you know, in Sweet Bitter, you wrote about the loss of people, of Tess's past life. And in the Paris Review, you said that you purposely wrote Tess without a real backstory. So do you think that there's any connection in the two? Um, it was interesting publishing nonfiction um, or personal essays before the novel because people already identify me so closely with Tess that I knew that they would assume that this was her backstory, that um, an essay about my father's struggle with addiction and how he's not in my life would be would now be added to Tess's history um, before she arrived in New York. And I was concerned about it, but not concerned enough. The personal essays are such a different voice, as you know, if you've read them. Um, and if anything, I think it differentiates me my voice writing as a 32-year-old adult woman from the 22-year-old eyes and voice of Tess that dominate the novel. Um, however, I do think that Tess is damaged by her family and her past. And for a long time, I made a choice not to talk about those things, not just publicly, but with even with people that I know that I've known for years, don't know anything about that. And that's one of the benefits of restaurant work, right, is that you can go in and develop these 
intimate connections and leave a year later without knowing someone's last name. And I really loved that anonymity. Um, but I definitely think that there is a, it's something I was working through about the search for a new family that is, that I see in Tess's trajectory that maybe I wasn't fully aware of when I was writing it. Um, is there, so how much, I guess, how much of that do you have to avoid when you're building the composite of Tess's life? Where do you draw the boundary between, uh, and where do you draw the boundary between what of yourself you contribute to her in the story itself? She actually has a backstory that I've written out like any good fiction writer. All of them do. Um, I've written them up to the point where we meet them in the story. And so she has had different experiences than I have had. Um, What's her backstory? What was that? What's her backstory? You know, it's not important to the novel, but <laughs> what we know, what we know about her is that she has never known her mother and that her father wasn't present. And I really think growing up with no maternal figure whatsoever is it informs every step she takes. Um, and that's what drives her to Simone. And I really see that relationship as the main love story within the novel. But that, and, but she says early in the novel that she's driven there by a vision of a woman by, of an adult woman. And she really is not just searching for, who she's going to become, but she is, she's searching for her mother. She's searching for that familiar face and that's her story. And that's not my story. So on this show, we ask all of our guests to come prepared with one story that they have really struggled to write in the past. Um, you know, it's kind of like a reminder for Kyle and I that, you know, there are difficult stories out there and, you know, it's the writer's job to put those on paper um, or to, you know, become a storyteller for that tale. So mm -hmm. I well, believe now that we're now that we're at your story, it seems like a natural segue to talk about one of the experiences in your life that it seems like it shaped a lot of the process of creating Sweet Bitter. Um, and it might be a good time to get into it. Yeah, it is. And that is something what you just said about that you need to tell these stories and become a storyteller for them is something that I learned after writing Sweet Bitter. I never in a million years when I was in graduate school thought I would write personal essays. I treasured um, fiction and its freedoms and its um, ability to, to distance itself from the author so, so much. But there are other stories that I wanted to tell from a different voice. Um, if we had done this six months ago, I would tell you a story about my father and discovering that he was a drug addict when I was 20 years old. But it's really interesting because I had an editor friend I'm going to lead into my other story, but I'm just going to say this quickly sure, in case sure. it's useful. Please, please um, I had an editor at Vogue and they wanted an essay from me and I pitched them this piece on lost jewelry, which ended up being published later. But I was like, Oh, this is perfect. This is so Vogue jewelry, women lost love. And 
my secondary pitch was I said, and I've been like tossing around this thing about like my father and boundaries and loving liars, but it's really dark. And I got on a conference call with these three women and they said, so we love the father thing. What, what's that story about? And I have not, I had never spoken about it. I was like sweating. I was hot. These are strangers. I mean, I had no idea where to begin or how to condense the narrative. And it all sounded so horrific over the phone, but that, and I, and as we got off the phone, they were like, this is great. This is what we want. And I was like, are you sure this is not very vogue? Like this (laughs) doesn't feel right to me. And I left them with like, I don't think I can do this, but I will give it one week of effort. And the essay came out of me in a day, almost exactly as it is now. Wow. It's one a, of those. It's a beautiful fe- essay. Thank you. Um, they sanded down some of the edges. It was a little bit grittier, but it is actually Vogue. So they can't publish all of it. Um, and I realized that that sense of urgency told me that the story was more important than my fear in that instance. And the fear lasted up until the day of publication. And it is a piece that someone reaches out to me about um, multiple times a week. And that's kind of terrifying on the one hand, because these women are writing to share their traumatic experiences with me or to tell me that my story is their story and to hear about that suffering is so overwhelming. Um, but it is also important for me to remember to, to honor the urgency, to honor the urgent story that needs to come out of you. So yeah, since I already told that story, There's something I've been thinking a lot about as I've been doing press for Sweet Bitter. I've been telling, I've been doing the timeline and the genesis of the novel. And I talk about how I had this career in restaurants uh, for seven years. And I went to wine school and I became a beverage director and I was a general manager. And I helped open two restaurants And I left this career. And every time I talk about it, I try to explain to the people that I'm talking to how terrifying and foolish it was at the time. Because at this point, it seems so obvious. Oh, Sweet Bitter, it's it's doing so well and people love it. So, of course, you should have left your real job and (laughs) identity and gone back to graduate school. There were so many people that took me aside and said, I think you're making a mistake. I don't want to see you saddled with debt for the rest of your life. I don't want to see you waste these years when you're so close to X, Y, and Z in your other profession. And so in honoring that fear that I felt and talking about how kind of desperate and frantic it made me to write the manuscript. What I skip over is the fact that I had been um, married. And at the exact same time that I was leaving restaurants 
And going back to school, I was also leaving my husband, um, which happens every day. And it's important to remember that because I think that divorce can feel so uniquely painful and it can really isolate you, but it is a very, very common experience. But each time it happens to someone, it feels like the end of the world and like it's happening for the first time. And I don't like to talk about it because it involves someone else, right? Someone that did not sign up to be spoken of. And it's also still very raw. It was three years ago. But it's also a little complicated because the reasons I left my marriage were not clear cut, but they had something to do with writing the book. And that has always felt like a very ugly thing to talk about. But there were points where it felt like I either had to choose my life with my husband, the one that we had spent the past six years building together, or I had to choose myself and my novel. And even with the success that Sweet Bitter has had, I still to this day don't know whether I've made the right choice but just that this is the one that I'm living with. And that since the day that I left, everything has happened almost in a fever dream. It has happened so quickly. And I've worked blindly, not almost delusionally, trying to finish this manuscript in the two years I was in graduate school. Um, but I couldn't have done it in that relationship that I was in. And not because it wasn't supportive, actually. It was very supportive. But because I couldn't be selfish in the way that I found was necessary for me to create. And I feel like that's a little bit of a taboo. I feel like that's not something I find women talking about often is that you actually might have to be deeply, deeply, painfully selfish in order to make art a priority. This is something that through reading you know, books on writing and essays on writing from famous authors, I feel like it's a topic that gets glossed over regularly in that American story of the path to success where someone overnight becomes the best-selling author of Sweet Bitter. She slid her manuscript across the table to an editor <laughs> who put her on the front page of the New York Times and it was all uh, sunshine and roses after that. She went on to be very successful. What I feel like gets glossed over a lot of the time is the sacrifice of the selfishness because like you're saying now, this comes at a cost. How, mm -hmm. what was the process like to get to that point? Which point? The point where you finally say to yourself, I'm going to commit to writing this book. I'm going to commit to changing my life. I'm going to commit to the amount of work that goes into creating this novel. Yeah. Um, 
it's so inextricably linked to me to the dissolution of my marriage that I can see that there wasn't, it took a bit to commit or to accept that this was going to be my life. I, as my marriage was falling apart, a very loud and rational voice in my head kept saying, we should just go back to the way things were. We should, we, you can have your old life back still. Um, and yet it was as if I was outside myself watching this slow destruction and creation. It was literally in the same moment that we're having those absolutely tragic, dark conversations that accompany the breakup of any long-term relationship that I was writing those first sentences and starting to dream about Simone and starting to hear the voices that would make up the chorus, which is what I call the fragments of dialogue. And the intensity of the experience of kind of getting out sweet bitter is partly because it was, it was all I, it was all I, I had in that moment. So I wasn't so much committed to it as clinging to it. At a certain point I did commit, but I think that that came, um, after things were really, really gone. I was like, well, okay. You've really done it. <laughs> now you have to write it. <laughs> uh, was there a specific moment when you knew that this path was the one you were going to go down? Hmm. N- no, there, there wasn't. It, it's a series, a series of moments, and to say that I knew anything about what I was doing would be false because I wasn't operating with any sort of self-awareness whatsoever. It is a blundering, messy time, but I did stop writing it. Um, I stopped everything. Actually, um, I finished my first year of graduate school and I had just moved out of my home that I'd had for many years and gone through all the painful packing and put everything in a storage unit. And I went and I walked, I totally forgot that this was connected, but I walked the Camino de Santiago, which is a trail that runs across the top of Spain. And I walked for 46 days by myself. It's a very crowded trail, so I did not lack for company, but I really was alone. And I had sort of grand ideas of, um, catharsis or forgiveness But I also, during that time, thought maybe I'll stop writing. I I mean, I did stop writing for the days I was walking. I didn't take notes. I, um, I didn't think about the book. But I thought that by the end of this, I'll know whether I should continue with Sweet Bitter. It was a moment in which I had to pause absolutely everything. Did you and, have, yeah, go ahead. Did you have doubts at any point? 
you know, you're moving sublet to sublet, you know, you haven't seen your husband in a while, you're in grad school, you have enormous debt. Like at any point, did you look back? Yeah, I had so many doubts and I was waiting tables again after managing for so long and some crazy talented 24 year old is bossing me around about wine. And I'm like, what the fuck did I do wrong? (laughs) Like, why did this happen? I, that was the most common. I would look at myself in the mirror and be like, why, 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 why you had a real life. It wasn't like some like horribly dysfunctional life that I was running away from. It was dinner parties and travel and steady income and savings accounts. And I swear, if you go out to destroy something, you can get rid of all of that in a year very easily. It just evaporates. I believe it. (laughs) Um, One one more thing that I really wanted to make sure I got in was um, what did all of this feel like? I mean, you're writing this novel, you're, you know, going through a divorce, you're waiting tables, you know, like on your first day back at the restaurant, what did it feel like? Um, it's a, it's funny how time really blacks out pain, or at least it does to me when I look back on my notebooks from that time. They're just really kind of, they're like catalogs of physical injury. You know, I would, I was sick all of the time. I had tendinitis. I, from waiting tables again, which is so fucking physically demanding. And I'd been managing and sitting, like having half office time for years. And, um, I had cuts and I had bad headaches and my menstrual cycle went crazy. It's when I look, cause I can't really remember. I have this vision. I have visions of myself crying before I would go into the restaurant and crying at the end of the night and running away, not speaking to anyone. But when I look back at the notebooks, it really, my, you know, my hair was thinning out everything that could go wrong with me physically was going wrong. And it's really scary to look back on it. It was, it's, um, it was dark and anxious and hopeless except for the book. And the book came out, you know, really, 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 really well. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all of this with us. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it is, it is good to talk about it feels very personal, but also very relevant to a struggle that a lot of people go through. And it's a struggle that's not as visible as it should be because of the type of stories that get told every day. So we appreciate being able to hear it from someone who's lived it and someone who uh, exemplifies the process and the hard work that goes into creating something like Sweet Bitter. Oh, thank you. Where can our listeners find you online? Oh, um, I have a website, Stephanie Dandler, and um, I'm very active on Instagram, SM Dandler. It's a fun medium. <laughs> I'm every, I'm everywhere online. Not hard to get to. Perfect. And we'll put all that info on the website and, and you know, on the SoundCloud page and everything. That was Stephanie Dandler, author of Sweet Bitter. 
just out from Knopf. You can find it online wherever books are sold or in your local indie. Uh, really, your local anything. Um, you know, it's in Barnes and Noble and uh, Waterstones if that still existed, and probably Target and Walmart. Uh, Do they have it at the Brookstones? I wish. Anyway, you can find Stephanie online at stephaniedandler.com or on Twitter at smdandler. You can find us on Twitter at www.podcast. Uh, find us online at www.podcast.com, on SoundCloud, iTunes, wherever podcasts are heard, including the new Apple AirPods. Uh, get me a pair. I really want one. Uh, you can subscribe to our newsletter, follow us all over social media, all of the normal stuff. The music that you hear at the top and the bottom of the, of the hour, uh, or you know whatever the length of the show is, uh, is Ryan Dan from Holland Patton Public Library. You can find him online at hollandpattonpubliclibrary.com. Uh, it's great. He's actually recording his next album, um, so stay tuned for that. And we really appreciate it. Tune in next week. We have another amazing guest uh, who we don't want to promo in case we decide to change who it is. We'll see you next week. <laughs>